0: Hello, and welcome to the switch focus podcast i'm Andy corrigan i'm back this week after taking last week out through some freelance commitments uh one of which i'll be able to talk about a bit later uh with me as always is Jeannie wu
1: hey how's it going
0: and andrew brown hello and what have you two been up to this last week
1: mostly xenoblade chronicles when it when it came out and before that bail chef brigade trying to finish that stuff off so just gaming just lots of games
2: Uh, This past week, well, uh, since yesterday I've been playing Xenoblade Chronicles 2, getting as much done of that as I can so I can actually say something about it in today's episode. But I've also been playing Resident Evil Revelations
0: Collection and
2: I finally finished up Doom. Nice.
0: So uh, let's get straight into that then with our updates from last week's episode. (music) So Doom then, Andrew, what did you make of it then once you'd finished?
2: I was surprised at the ending. That was a very uh, indistinct ending, which actually shouldn't surprise me, because I've played the original Dooms, so I knew that they kind of ended the same way. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I want more. More, please. It, uh, it's a surprising game to be on the Switch, and I'm glad it's there. Uh, and It takes some getting used to, just from the way it looks, because... Even if you haven't played the original, you can tell that compromises were made to get it running on the hardware, but it runs great, and it's still a really good game. so uh, I'm very happy that I spent time with it because I was half convinced not to.
0: Yeah, I can see myself replaying it on Switch quite a lot, to be honest. It's just so fun um and your copies of Rhyme and Axiom Verge also arrived.
2: They actually came the week before, but I just forgot to mention them. <laughs> ah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, rhyme uh, is, I can tell from playing it, should be a game that I like. It's very mysterious and ethereal and just the way the whole world is designed. It should be a game that I like because you play as a character who washes up on this abandoned island and you've got to kind of find your way off of it. And There's no dialogue or anything. Uh, It's all completely told as a story, completely through gameplay, which is something that I really like to see in a game because you actually don't see it that often. It seems like we do because those games get a lot of attention when they come out and they really stick with us, but actually games that actually really do that are pretty rare to see. What's unfortunate about it is it does not run well on the Switch hardware and... I've seen some interviews with the developers where they said they had to choose between either the game running well, uh, like no frame rate drops uh, or anything like that, or having loading screens. And they chose the former because they thought that having the entire island be seamless was too important to the game. And I can definitely see their perspective on that. But you can look at the video that I posted on our Switch Focus YouTube channel the game chugs constantly and it's really distracting it's not unplayable but to have a game that's supposed to be a seamless experience it detracts from the seamlessness of it so i would definitely say if you're interested in rhyme play it on another platform
0: how does it compare to say breath of the wild which is pretty seamless and a huge island and so forth is there much difference is the graphical style vastly different to warrant uh, that, that lack of power. Rime is more minimalistic,
2: and the environment is much smaller than Breath of the Wild. Uh, if people played Breath of the Wild on Switch when it launched, they knew how hard the frame rate would run in the Korok Forest area, and but they eventually patched that out. Basically, the entirety of Rime runs like that. And uh, hopefully they'll patch it one day, but I... Don't see them putting much resources into it because i don't think the game is going to sell very well it's not going to be worth their time to fix these issues
0: hmm. okay and axiom verge have you had a chance to play much of that
2: i played a night of it it's super metroid basically uh i, I characterized <laughs> it as super metroid meets half-life because like the start of the game is identical to half-life um but they do some cool things with the game uh all of these games, a lot of these indie games are throwbacks to NES games, but this one actually would take things that would happen on the NES where uh, the game would just try to do more than the console was really capable of doing, or just the nature of the medium at the time where the cartridges weren't very stable, so there would be minor graphical errors involved in it. Most of the indie games you play nowadays have sorted those issues out, but... Axiom Verge actually reproduces those graphical errors and actually makes it a part of the gameplay and part of the game environment, and I haven't played very far into it yet, but I assume part of the game's story, so I'm interested to see where they go with that. Uh, Obviously, Axiom Verge has been out for a few years now. It's already gotten lots of rave reviews, so it's great to see it on the Switch. This is my first time playing it, and if you haven't played it, this might be a good chance for you to take that opportunity
0: yeah my interest is certainly growing in it i've I've heard a lot of good things about it certainly since it hits the switch anyway
1: yeah i played rhyme um not on the switch though so um i can't speak to whether or not um there are any frame rate issues for everyone on the switch but i do agree that in rhyme it is particularly important to show the environment as one continuous flow i think that really is sort of what makes that's what makes rhymes exploration feel like you're exploring because it's described as a really big island, but in actuality, it's not um, It's not large in the scape that you think a uh, quote-unquote traditional open-world game is large. And so I think having having it not broken up and not segmented by loading screens actually does the inverse of what you think. It sort of makes you feel like you are trudging through a vast landscape. Um, in terms of whether or not I'll play Axiom Verge, um, maybe... Um, I agree that it sounds really good, but it's just um, I'm not the biggest hardcore fan of Metroid games. I enjoy them, but I wouldn't go out of my way to play them. So I think while my time is still being eaten up by bigger releases, I might sort of wait and put Axiom Verge in the back burner if I do pick it up. But I agree that my interest is growing just because everyone I know seems to really enjoy it and even people that wouldn't traditionally identify as Metroid game fans. So, who knows? It could be in my future. Maybe someone got it for me for Christmas.
2: (laughs) Hint, hint. (laughs) Uh,
0: So, uh, the good news is, after, what, three weeks of trying, I finally found time to sit down with L.A. Noire. Yes. Uh, So, this whole three weeks, I've had all kinds of folks, you two included, constantly reiterating what a great port it is. Mm -hmm. It's not until you actually see it running that you get that little moment of surprise, like, just to see that open world engine running on the Switch, it's really cool. It's a really solid port, however my, my only caveat is that it's still L.A. Noire. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, f- so for that I still have issues with the story. The whole facial tech thing to me is still impressive, but even the first time around I found some of it a bit creepy. <laughs> like like the body animations aren't always yeah. as well done, which jars with the facial animations. And And I guess it's that thing of where we get closer and closer to realism the little things stand out more I don't know, I, I, I had that same like, creepy reaction to it the f- first time, so it's it's not related to the Switch port, but despite that yeah, what a great port um, super happy to revisit, even with my reservations from the original release, because even though it's divisive and uneven, it's absolutely worth playing because it's at least interesting and there's things to talk about with it mm. um, I am going to stick to my plan of treating it like a TV show and just chip away like a, a desk at a time over a couple of weeks yeah what a solid port I I recommend picking it up if you have an interest
1: that. how are you feeling about the introduction of the touchscreen controls for the investigations because
0: I really enjoy those it feels so
1: much more dynamic for me to be able to you know touch things and flip pages and stuff like
0: that I have only played it docked unfortunately oh
1: okay okay Um,
0: but uh, I will be playing some handheld because I think the the wife's going to start it soon and she didn't want the spoilers so I'll just play it off off screen so yeah and now we'll move on to the latest Switch news. Okay, so news is obviously slowing down as we get towards the the Christmas period, uh, but we have a couple of bits here. So, Ukulele finally has a Switch release date. It's been a long time coming, and that's going to hit the store on the 14th of December. Now, do either of you two have an interest in this one? I personally don't based on what I've read about the other ports.
1: I am not uh, 100% convinced um, that having the game on the Switch will make me enjoy it more. Um, So I'm of the camp that thinks that Ukulele is a fine game, but it's not a great game. And I mean, I've already got it on one platform. I don't feel like I need it on the Switch particularly. I would note, though, that it looks like they're adding Switch-exclusive content um, and a custom achievement system um which will be different from the other ports so far so if you are someone that loves achievement hunting maybe um and apparently i guess they're going to have a brand new camera mode as well and new music i guess it'll probably be the most fully featured version of ukulele to actually come out um that's what it looks like the press releases are saying so i mean if you like ukulele and you want to experience more ukulele content then maybe consider picking it up on the switch um, just for all the stuff that all the stuff that they're going to add to it, but as someone who's played it once already, wasn't enraptured by it. I'm probably going to give it a miss because I don't think new music or um, a new camera mode is going to change my mind about how the game played. Um, what about you, Andrew?
2: I was interested in getting ukulele when it was first released because I'm a mm. big fan of Banjo Kazooie. Uh, yeah, con- I consider it personally the finest 3D platformer ever made. So. Uh, another game in the same spirit, made from the same developers. Yeah, I'm absolutely on board. So I was disappointed when it didn't get great reviews uh, because I was purposefully waiting for the Switch version to come out before I bought Mm. it. Uh, But I'm going to pick it up anyway, uh, even though it sounds like it's going to be a digital exclusive, and I'm sure it's going to be at least $40. Uh, Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. So there's no physical version. That's disappointing to me. Uh, It sounds like it's not the game we all hoped it would be also disappointing uh and it's gonna be twice as expensive more than likely than it is on other platforms also disappointing but i i waited this long to play it on switch so i'm gonna go through with it i'm gonna play it and i'll report back with my thoughts about it
0: yeah i'm not a massive fan of banjo kazooie i I started a playthrough on rare replay on xbox and i Mm. sort of I got a fair way in, and and then I decided it wasn't worth my time to finish it, which is a shame, so that's probably part of why I'm a bit hesitant, but we'll see how this plays out. Moving on, we've got a backlash regarding microtransactions on the Switch eShop, especially with a game that's come out this week, which we'll mention in the new release segment called Mujo. Uh, now, this is a port of a mobile game uh, that has a more of a premium price on Switch, as you see a, a lot more, but it still relies on extent of microtransactions to get the best out of it. Uh yeah, talk me through this one.
1: So, Mujo is a sort of basic puzzle game um and it was a port from um I think it was the Apple iStore where it was originally. And so, it's basically like any other sort of number puzzle game on the iShop. I wouldn't call it particularly anything um anything special, um but it's kind of a game that thrives in the Apple Store ecosystem. So I thought it would be cool to have it on Switch, but as like a sort of premium version. So, you know, you pay full price and then everything's sort of just sorted out for you. But it appears to be that um, you pay on the Switch eShop for the game, but still have to rely on microtransactions um, to, for example, add things like certain characters to your troop or to your sort of um, base. And that you'll also... Have to um, use my transactions to get certain items to help you clear certain number blocks and stuff like that. For example, I think it's got. I think it still has a limited array. Sorry, I think it still has a limited amount um, of playthroughs that you can have. So, for example, like if you die on a level, I think you have a certain amount of lives and stuff like that. And then the only way to replenish them is you either wait over time, like on most mobile games, or it looks like you're able to buy them as well. So, I mean, I think for me personally um it is a bit it's not great i think it's not great that you're paying a quote-unquote premium price compared to the mobile version for a game that still fully relies on microtransactions for you to make timely regular progress um i think i would hope that we're past that um at least in the eShop. but it looks like games like this are creeping back in um i think we talked about antiquary lost which was a mobile rpg um in episode 10 that we discussed that has some microtransaction elements so things like extra skills um extra weapons and exp gains and stuff like that you could buy which obviously aren't i suppose as game changing um as a regular mobile game that relies on microtransactions to give you lives and stuff like that but i guess to me it looks like what's allowed in the e-shop in terms of what you can buy with real money has slowly escalated Um, I'm sure there are other titles on the other region stores that also rely on microtransactions. And I guess I wonder, I know that people have come and spoken out against it quite quickly, but is this sort of like an inevitable creeping in of like paid DLC and microtransactions on the eShop? What do you guys think?
2: When I see in-app transactions or or whatever the euphemism is they use on the eShop and a, a... description of a game that's a strong deterrent from me ever playing it Mm. like we've got that MOBA that's supposed to be coming out on the switch it it was supposed to have a beta coming uh, before the end of the year we haven't heard word one about it but I guess that's still coming uh that'll probably be the first switch game I play that's for sure gonna have microtransactions in it but I'm still not gonna spend any money on them uh this is not Switch-related, but I've played dozens of hours, if not hundreds of hours, of Heroes of the Storm. I've got several dozen heroes unlocked in it. I have not spent one penny on that game, and I, I'm i actually pretty proud of that. Uh, mm. uh, I think I'm going to be much the same way with this MOBA that's coming to Switch. Uh, mm. Unless there's like no, no way to unlock things, unless you're spending real money on them, then I'm probably not going to play very much on it at all. That's kind of my approach to games that use microtransactions is... I look at it as kind of a challenge mode, I guess would be the word I would use, or, or an alternate metagame would be, yep. h- how much can I play this game that's designed to be played with money put into it, invested into it, without mm. actually spending any money? Uh, so like, when I look at a game like Antiquia Lost or, I guess, Mujo, uh, where you can't really do much of anything... Uh, Practically without spending money on it. I'm not gonna probably play a game like that Or like this MOBA that's coming out if they're gonna charge an upfront fee for it in addition to microtransactions I don't know that I'm gonna play it at all because especially with a MOBA If you're gonna be charging microtransactions, and that's the main source of your revenue stream I'm gonna ask you why it has an upfront fee for it at all. Are you that concerned that? Nobody's going to play it, and you're going to need that just to generate any profit at all. I I have a lot of caveats and a lot of requirements up front before I'm going to put any time into a game that has microtransactions in it.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm the same. There's a, I've got a lot of little justifications for things. So, okay, uh, Rocket League, for example. Yeah, yeah. Great game. You can unlock a heap of stuff just by playing through it naturally. But when I got the Switch version, I really, really wanted the DeLorean and the mm-hmm. Batmobile, so I paid for it five bucks. Yeah, I'm entire. I'm entirely happy with that. Right, that that's fine because it wasn't required. Mm-hmm. It was an option. I'm not getting any benefit from it. It's just hey, here's a cool thing you can make your car look like. That's fine. Um, but like Andrew, if a game is charging full price up front and the the main model of them keeping that game going is microtransactions they've got to be very careful on the pricing mm. um, which is where you're seeing Star Wars Battlefront 2 fall into uh, a lot of consumer backlash at the moment because they're charging 60 bucks and then saying hey these people who pay money are going to have way more of an advantage than you when it comes to playing the, the multiplayer that's that's the big problem for me As uh, it's getting the right balance between progression uh, without spending and the benefit from spending I think and that's a a tough balance I get it for developers to find Um, but I think in those situations you should err on the side of caution and make it easier for those that aren't paying the money and then I think they'll be more likely to want to spend the money that's my opinion
1: yeah i think so too um as someone who plays games like heroes of the storm and league of legends pretty much religiously um i'm no stranger to microtransactions but like i andrew said in those games it's mostly cosmetic benefits you get from microtransactions you can very easily earn the heroes you need to earn by playing the game but if you want to dress them up like some kind of cartoon character or whatever you can easily just if you want to pay x amount of money or even farm in-game currency to do so um in terms of Arena of Valor, which is the mobile that's coming to the Switch, um, that's by Tencent, which are a majority stakeholder in League of Legends. So I suspect that they'll employ a very similar model to um, to the game and its transactions. So I suspect it'll be mostly cosmetic things that you can buy with my transactions instead of, you know, being characters or character skills. So I've got some hope for Arena of Valor. I'd actually like to try a mobile on the Switch, and that's... I'm looking forward to but I think coming back to what you said Andrew about people having to be careful about what they charge and also um, what kind of games they port over um, I think if you're porting a game like Mujo whereby you haven't it looks like you haven't really made much of effort to optimize it for Switch um, as in the game maintains its original aspect ratio from mobile um, and stuff like that um, I think you should really really think about I guess what you want to charge and whether or not you think you should still include micro purchases with a game that you're charging a full 10 USD for that has no graphical difference or optimization for the Switch whatsoever from the mobile version, which is free. So, yeah, I mean, I guess I just hope that not too many of these games make their way onto the Switch. Um, I like them to stay in their own um, corner. Um, I'm sure people enjoy them. I'm sure people out there don't mind dropping tonnes of dollars on mobile games um, and on these transactions, like good for them. But I think that the fact that we're seeing a couple trickle into the Switch eShop once every two weeks or so, that number could easily get bigger. And I really hope it doesn't get too big and become a real problem.
2: Super Meat Boy, they've the developers whose name I've forgotten, uh, Team Meat. <laughs> yeah. They've announced that they are bringing something extra to the Switch port that might entice people to buy it, even though they probably already bought it several times over. Mm -hmm. Uh, I suspect it's going to be the original soundtrack, which was lost to the ages in some update further in the back because of licensing reasons. Uh, I think they've got the soundtrack back. What do you think?
0: I haven't played a lot of uh, Super Meat Boy played a bit on ps4 so i never experienced that original soundtrack anyway yeah me me Uh, neither. so (laughs) so yeah actually no it's vita i own it on yeah and yeah that definitely didn't have the old soundtrack so i mean it's cool i know there was a bit of a a disappointment from fans about the Mm. the soundtrack when it hit other platforms than 360 so you know that'd be cool
1: i never played it on 360 so i wouldn't have ever heard the original soundtrack But it looks like something that I guess they're looking to grab fans of the series with. So it makes sense that that would be a solid prediction that they will bring the original OST back. But otherwise, I can't think of anything else that would make someone buy it on the Switch if they already have it. Um, I was going to say, you know, Switch optimization, but I don't think people are huge (laughs) fans of motion control and touchscreen anywhere on the Switch. So probably not that. I guess only time will tell.
0: Certainly not with the Twitch platformer. Yeah, Um, exactly. Okay, let's move on to new releases. Okay, so we're going to run through the list as we always do, and we'll talk about the ones that we've either played or are interested in. Uh, We're going to start off with Opus, The Day We Found Earth. Uh, I picked this up because I heard it was a a short game, and it certainly is. It's about two hours long. Uh, I paid under... $8 $8 redoes for it, and it's pretty good. I really like it. So it's uh, set in a far-flung future where humans are spread far and wide across the universe, uh, but problems now exist in the human gene pool, and two scientists are responsible for rediscovering Earth so they can figure out how to fix it. Uh, so they create a robot called Emith, who they task with finding Earth using a super-powerful telescope. Uh, So as a myth, you use this telescope to scan the various solar systems, looking for planets and stars that match Earth's data. It basically uses more information that you find around the ship, which you unlock more of as you you progress. In some ways, it's also a bit like a a non-real-time no-man's sky, because you can name the planets you find. It's a very story-focused game, Uh, the plot is massively important, so I won't delve too far into the finer details but in between the scanning process you uh, you talk to characters you investigate documents that might give you more clues as to what's going on. The characters are brilliant Emmeth, as the robot is super charming he's got like a childish personality and he's like eager to perform his mission. Dynamic between the scientists and Emmet is interesting too and I need to make special mention of the soundtrack because it's utterly utterly beautiful. Uh, in fact, it does warn you to play with headphones. I would definitely recommend that. It's really the really good. Uh, and I don't regret it at all. I, I finished it. I think it's worth two hours of anyone's time. Give it a go. Is it mostly a text adventure, or what What kind of game is it? It's, it's more like a point-and-click game. You've got the cursor around the spaceship that you can move around to click on things. And when you're doing the scanning, you're just basically moving a cursor around a map of the stars. And you get clues for like which star you're meant to scan. So you it'll tell you like either coordinates or give you a general region. And you can use a filter to try and highlight the, the possible correct locations. And then it does a scan and then it tells you more about the planet. And then it takes you back to the ship for more more story. So it's got a very small gameplay loop, but it, it's, it's really cool. I, I enjoyed playing through it.
1: Good stuff. Um. Sounds interesting. Um. Someone described me as a uh, more depressing version of Wall-E, um. And I really liked that movie, so um, <laughs> I might give it a go. Um. You had me at cute robot and yeah. a sort of No Man's Sky vibe, so I'm really quite interested in it.
0: It's definitely charming. Um. There there are some sad elements to it, but it, there's also some heartwarming stuff in there as well. So it's it's definitely recommended on my end, anyway. Awesome. Okay, uh, moving on, we're going to talk about Resident Evil Revelations Collection. Uh, I played and really loved the 3DS game of the original. I didn't pick up the sequel. Uh, I did buy both on the Switch yesterday. Haven't played either yet, uh, but I will fairly soon. uh, Once I work out a battle plan to beat Xenoblade Chronicles 2 and knock out some of my Switch backlog. Purchasing these two games kicked off some SD card anxiety for me, which is mm. annoying, but oh well. um Actually, what I was saying about uh, playing LA, not LA Noir as a t- TV show, this might be a good one because at the end of every chapter it's got the previously on Resident Evil Revelations thing, I think I remember. So that could be a thing I do. So you've played quite a bit of it, Andrew. What are you making?
2: Well, I played Revelations 1 on 3DS. It was one of the first 3DS games I own, and I'm a big fan of it. Uh, and I'm not the only one. Uh, I've been pretty critical of the direction the Resident Evil series has taken since 4. I haven't played 7 yet. 7 is supposed to be great, but 4 is one of my all-time favorite games, uh, but 5 and 6 and all the other games they put out since... I have not been a big fan of them, but Revelations was a 3DS game, but they put all of their resources into it. They treated it just like any other game in the series, and it's actually pretty great, It's and I... I, credit that entirely to the fact that the original game was a 3ds game so even though they put a lot of resources into it they were still limited with the excess they could go to so there's no final boss fight in a volcano where the main character punches a boulder because the console is not capable (laughs) of it and i consider that to be a big advantage Uh, (laughs) but it it does look like a 3ds game that it's it's been uprezzed but it's limited in what it is capable of doing because it was a 3DS game, and this is reflected in the character models. The characters, they look a little fat because they had to be more exaggerated just to really be noticeable on the 3DS screen. But then when you up them and put them on a full-screen display like we have, they do look a little off now. Um, I will say that. Like, uh, one of the characters... I'm just terrible with names tonight. Uh, But one of the characters, he he looks overweight. He doesn't look like this muscle-bound action hero. He looks fat. Uh, So that's kind of a a hitching point where you may not find the characters fully believable now because they they just don't look like themselves. But as towards, I've been talking about this a lot in the weeks coming up to this, the motion controls, where I was very concerned that they wouldn't work as well because... Most of the games I've been playing on the Switch that use motion controls, they have not been enjoyable experiences for me, and I'm comparing everything back to Resident Evil 4 Wii Edition, which has amazing motion aiming. I'm very, very, very happy to say that in both Resident Evil Revelations 1 and 2, the motion aiming works brilliantly. I have not even considered turning it off, and I'm... I'm so pleased about that. And finally, a shooter I can play on the Switch where I'm not turning off the motion controls. That's pretty great. Uh, So that's Revelations 1, which completely holds up uh, as far as the main story goes. But if you're going to play these games for the raid mode, which is the online cooperative mode, which kind of works like an RPG, but it's also a shooter... You might want to just go for Revelations 2. I haven't played much of Revelations 2 yet, but the raid mode in that is much more robust. So if you're interested in these games just for online multiplayer, maybe just go for the second one. But as for the campaign in the second one, what little I've played of it remind me strongly of The Evil Within, and that's not a compliment. The Evil Within was a mess of a game. Uh, it was all about, like, being sucked into this hive mind occupied by mental patients in a hospital and the setting was just a mess and like the enemies you fought were like zombies that were wrapped in barbed wire and there was these machines everywhere with blades on them that would chase you down and on these tracks and you had to dodge around them almost everything in the first area of revelations 2 at least is very much the same (laughs) So I was not happy to see that, but as far as the way it plays and the way the guns feel and the way the story is told, even though it reminds me of The Evil Within, I'm enjoying it much more than I enjoyed The Evil Within. So that's got that going for it, and especially the dialogue, Uh, the Resident Evil series is often criticized for not having great dialogue like there's the whole jill sandwich meme which actually gets mocked in revelations <laughs> too and uh, and there's a one of the supporting characters is moira burton who has a potty mouth on her let me let me just put it that way and that usually doesn't come off real great in video games because if you're going to write a character that has that is profane it, it can be very difficult to make it sound natural the dialogue in Revelations 2, it sounds, it's the most natural I've heard in a Resident Evil game, and probably in most games. So that is pretty exciting to see as a person who really focuses on the way a story is told and the way it's written. And also Revelations 2, just as a no- last note, it's hard. I mean, I, I I died, like, just flat out on a basic difficulty. I don't, I don't die in shooters on a def regular difficulty this game killed me so yeah uh, I have more to say on Revelations 2 after I've spent more time with it but that'll have to wait for a later date
0: cool. just for the record I really liked uh, Evil Within I thought it was cool but <laughs> each to their own um, okay so we'll move on to some of the other releases uh, we've got Gear Club Unlimited I was interested until in I saw the price and read some of the reviews Um Beat Sonic EX uh, you've played this one Ginny?
1: Yeah, I've played it. Um, I think we talked about it briefly last week, um, but it really feels like a rhythm game that you play at an arcade. Um, the music kind of sounds like DDR music um, or contemporary house music. Um, it's full of flashing lights. So one of our listeners, Most Strange, says that Super Beat Zonic EX is one of their favorite rhythm game control schemes with their least favorite UI, because <laughs> apparently the menus are really bad. Um, The music is a great mix, and every song feels good to smash buttons to. Some of the art is icky, the announcer is tiresome, but the core mechanics are still super fun. Um, As someone who has played Super Beat Zonic EX, I concur with pretty much all of those points. And I mentioned this very quickly last week, but it feels like an arcade rhythm game. So yes, every song is great to smash buttons to. It's mostly flashing lights and bars, kind of like DDR for your hands. Um, and the music is really, really upbeat, like contemporary electro house music and stuff like that. So if you don't like that genre of music, this really isn't the rhythm game for you. But there are other more down-tempo games like Demo and Voez on the Switch, which are rhythm games that have a larger variety of songs. Um, I agree that the announcer is is tiresome. Um, but I think Super Sonic EX um, is a great fun game. Um, it sort of fills the gap that Voez and Demo... And the other music games on the Switch weren't filling, so Boa's kind of felt more like playing an instrument. Um, and Dima was sort like very—it um, was a game with a narrative, uh, well, not a very complicated one, but it was kind of heavily based and thematically based around a narrative, and all the songs would imbue that. Um, Super Beat Sonic is more just like a classic arcade game. It just—you can sort of smash a couple of tunes out, put it away. Um, I probably would not play it for hours. I think the flashing lights might give me a migraine. <laughs> but um i would definitely play it um in short bursts it is incredibly fun um the ui is really not great not that it's complicated but just it just looks ugly um but like i said it definitely feels like a game you play an arcade so i guess it hasn't really um been tuned um for aesthetic preferences um i would say like it's eye-catching so everything is sort of loud out there and that's the general design aesthetic of super beat sonic ex um, but I can recommend it if you're a rhythm game fan and you have already got Demo or even if you haven't got Demo or this is a sort of very traditional arcade rhythm game which you would have probably played at some point growing up um, in an arcade uh, it has a very nostalgic feel to it um, so yeah I mean I like it as a rhythm game fan but if you're not a rhythm game fan probably I can't recommend this to you just because of all the things that you won't be able to overlook but hey it's a solid purchase Um, You are paying a big Nintendo tax for it, but I think we're used to that now with every game on the eShop. So, yeah. If you're a game fan, pick it up.
0: Cool. Uh, Also, we have uh, Mujo, which we mentioned before, the microtransaction filled puzzler. Uh, Traverse USA, which is an arcade archives title. We have Neo Geo World Heroes. Uh, Acorn Tactics, which looks pretty interesting. Might be one for those that have done with Mario plus Rabbids. Uh, Starghost, which was a twin-stick shooter Uh, Siberia 2 Uh, I knew there was Siberia but I didn't know there was a sequel
2: There's three of them
0: Oh, okay
1: (laughs) Have you played the first Siberia, Andy?
0: No, I haven't
1: Um, Well, Siberia as a series they're sort of point-and-click adventure games with puzzles in them and the core conceit is that there's a mystical land in the game world called Siberia, which is supposedly home to prehistoric mammoths and basically, um, a, a kind of plot point that stretches across Siberia 1 and 2 is for you to pursue those mammoths and find them and prove that they're real, in a sense, to yourself and to others. Um, I don't want to say any more because I really spoil some of the major story beats, but that's sort of what the game's core driving forces, apart from, you know, power of friendship and helping other people and stuff like that. It is a very forgiving game, so if you're... A fan of the point-and-click genre but not so good with puzzles this would be going to pick up um and while it does have continuity from siberia 1 the story as you can tell from the whole mammoth thing is probably fantastical enough to not need too much context to play so yeah if you like point-and-click adventures that are not too difficult but still have a relatively engaging plot i can recommend siberia 2
0: yeah i wasn't expecting you to mention mammoths <laughs> So uh, and also serial cleaner. I know Andrew has an interest in this because he was asking about it on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ginny's the only one on the team that's actually played it.
1: Um, it kind of feels like a mixture of popular games of the stealth assassin genre. Well, the stealth killing genre, I guess, um, is reasonably fast paced. I've heard some people compare it to Hotline Miami, but I think that's a bit. Um, case-wise that isn't really accurate so you kind of play as the guy who cleans up after the stealth assassin um you play as a cleaner who cleans up after people that kill other people so it's a riff on the genre because you still have stealth assassin mechanics and that you have to like avoid guards and avoid other people and your job is to basically clean entire crime scene and hide the bodies before getting caught um, the game is really really good in short bursts um, it gets really quite repetitive otherwise um, there isn't too much difference between the levels um, but they all have great momentum and thematically it's really strong, it's very 70s um, big eyebrows, big beards um, big music in the soundtrack so if you feel like you can sort of look past the game basically being a series of very similar levels, I would go for it um, I've only ever played in short bursts myself so I've always enjoyed it and never got tired of it but I know the common frustration with the game is that it kind of drags because everything kind of starts to, every crime scene starts to look the same after a while. So if you want um, a game like Serial Cleaner, um, a stealth assassin quote-unquote assassin game, I can recommend it. But if you're not a fan of the genre, I think it'll be, I think, the repet- I think the repetition will be a bit too much of a deterrent.
2: Is it like procedurally generated levels or is it a pre-set campaign?
1: um that's a good question um when i've died the levels haven't changed so i mean i would assume that it's preset but it it could be generated and then it's the same for as long as you keep playing in it
0: Mm, okay so okay and lastly before we get on to the big one is lego marvel superheroes 2 i do actually have an interest in this because i'm a big spider-man fanboy but i haven't got around to playing any of these ones yet so maybe at some point Uh, and now we're going to move on to the big one which is probably going to be the most divisive of the big releases Nintendo has had Xenoblade Chronicles 2 so I was away last week because I had a freelance assignment for this basically helping with the video for IGN should be up by the time this this podcast goes live so I'll include it in the show notes if it's up Um, I did only get around 20 hours in only he says uh, but I do really like what I've played of it so far. Uh, just a bit of a background to the story. So it's set in a world c- called Alrest, where uh, all that can be seen is an endless cloud uh, with what people call the World Tree in the middle of it, reaching to the heavens. Uh, people believe at its top sits Elysium, which is the home of the world's creator, the Architect. So uh, massive creatures called Titans roam the world, and the Titans act as the world land. Uh, housing entire cultures, civilizations, ecosystems, but they're all dying and no one knows why. Uh, and everyone's pretty worried that there's going to be nowhere to call home soon and all life will become extinct. So, what are you making of the story so far?
1: Um, well, I think it's no secret that I am a JRPG fanatic. Um, so I think I was always going to like Xenoblade Chronicles too, And... I mean, I am liking it um <laughs> i I think it's great um I think it it's I think it strikes um a decent balance between having a very serious underlying narrative but focusing enough on like i guess the bonds of character friendship and also party bonds and individual stories to kind of take you out of that kind of quite depressing sort of like we're destroying the earth um kind of underlying themes in the story um overall. I am not as far in as Andy, probably about 10 hours currently, Um, but I've enjoyed what I've seen. Um, I can't say I've been particularly surprised by what I've seen, Um, but as you know, JRPGs often have a particular formula that they follow, so I wasn't looking for some crazy plot twist to smack me in the face at some point when I was playing for those 10 hours. I can say it's what I expected. Um, It's more charming than I expected, Um, and I'm really enjoying myself so far.
2: Well, as I've discussed, uh, based on the promotional materials we've seen of the game so far, it it does look really good. I haven't run into any textures or anything like that that I've been too harsh on, but I've only played it for about five hours. I'm not as deep in as either Ginny or Andy is, so maybe uh, the worst is yet to come. (laughs) But as far as just designs of the monsters and even the characters there's nothing that really stands out it all looks very generic to me so far so that's kind of disappointing just every anything in this could be interchanged with an rpg enemy in any other game and i wouldn't be able to tell the difference so that's that's disappointing uh but as to the story I'm not very far in yet, so I I can't say too much about it, but it does seem to follow the trope of the bland male protagonist who is the best friend of a far more interesting woman who is the actual main character. Uh, (laughs) Maybe that changes later on. I, I know Tales of Symphonia back in the 2000s, really turned that on its head, where Lloyd would eventually step up to be the real main character of the story, but you gotta yeah. play for, like, 40 hours before that happens. Uh, so maybe that'll happen in this one, too, and I would enjoy seeing that. But everything interesting that I am intrigued about as far as the the plot development and the motivations and the relationships between the heroes and the villains is happening with Pyrrha. It's not happening... With Rex, so I, I hope that changes because Rex is not as bland as Itsuki in uh, Tokyo Mirage Sessions was, or Vaughn in Final Fantasy XII, both which are both games that really suffer from this trope that I'm complaining about. Uh, but I'm not nearly as interested in him as I am in Pira.
1: Yeah, um, I do agree with you to some extent. Um, I actually don't really mind that Rex was just along for the ride because, I mean, he was just quite like a simple, um, how do you call it? He was like he was just like a really he's, simple he's a, country boy he's a salvager, living his yeah. life. So, so, yeah. so
0: for a bit of background, he's a, a deep sea salvager who sails the Cloud Sea on the back of a Titan called Gramps and together they look for scrap to sell so he can send money back he- to his hometown because he's a good boy
1: yeah he's just a really good boy yeah, I mean, you know he's a good kid he cares about his town and he cares about gramps and he cares about people he considers his family so i mean while he may not be particularly interesting or tortured or you know have anything sort of that's exceptional about him that doesn't come about as a result of his bond or his accidental bond with pira i'm not mad about that I don't mind that as much. Um, I mean, I appreciate that not everyone can be outstanding and talented and, and great at what they do, and Rex kind of fumbling around and being clumsy when you do things like attempt to salvage in-game and press the buttons too slowly. Him sort of bumbling around kind of makes it feel a bit more real and a bit more relatable to me.
2: Yeah, Jason Schreier on Kotaku, he's put up a review of Xenoblade Chronicles 2, which is quickly becoming infamous with uh, the the gamer set because he was not very nice to it, and he was particularly not hot on Rex. And I, I don't agree with everything he said about Rex. Rex is not interesting, but he, he there's a character there. He has a personality, mm. and like Schreier, like, characterized it, oh, he, he he sends money back home because he's a nice boy, and he he helps people he meets because he's a nice boy. And I said, Yes, that's true, but I think that's also dismissing it. I mean he sends money back home because he's a nice boy, but he's also responsible for that. That That's compelling to me, that he is out here on his own, basically, except for Gramps, which is the titan that he, the the, the very small titan that he rides around on to do his job. And he's out here on his own, he's making a living supporting all of his family away. You know, that's not, the stuff that great stories are made of, but that's an interesting character. I mean, there is something going on there. He's not an ordinary high school student who goes to school and then goes home, and that's his story. So <laughs> so I, I'm not at all harsh on Rex. I'm just, I'm way more interested in Pyrrha. Mm,
1: that's fair.
0: Cool. So let's move on to its systems. Uh, one of the positives that I wanted to mention was how it does a terrific job of teaching you everything there's a like a lot of JRPGs either front load this information at you to the point where it's easy to miss vital systems or mechanics or they take too long to get to it or which some people would call Final Fantasy 13 syndrome not me because I like that game but I think it does everything at a steady pace it goes here's something you need to know now go play with that for half an hour and then once once it's given you enough time to get used to it, it goes, Oh hey, here's another level you probably haven't thought about and then gives you more time to get on with that. So I've not felt overwhelmed with any instruction. I feel like I'm learning it at a good pace. And and because of that I don't feel like I'm missing anything in combat that's hurting me. What do you guys make of that?
1: Yeah, I'm enjoying it. I particularly enjoy the fact that the tutorial AI kinda of has like a personality. Like it tries to chat to you like a mate does. Like, you know, it's like, Have you thought about this? Or we'll do this together later. Like, you know, like, I appreciate that. Um, I think it's a nice touch. Um, one system I'm particularly keen on is the town development system. So when you go into different hub towns, you can level them up, so to speak, by interacting with the people that live there, getting their support, even just like show that you care about them by having a conversation. And that will affect um, items that are made available to you and the price of certain items and services so I think it's overall useful while also being fun to play with and just seeing how people change and the way that they interact with you that's really it's a really nice touch that kind of feels like you're coming home if you have like one particular hub port they've leveled up a lot more than the others so I enjoy that and I'm also enjoying the intricate skill system for the blades and the characters Um, it was a bit much to look at when I first opened it up I was like okay there's like 30 skills here what do I do what are my points for Um, but I think it's appears to be really customizable um you've got multiple levels of upgrading your blades um in terms of the skills that they can have and what skills that can be triggered with different weapons so and that's really interesting and it's also nice that you don't actually have your own weapons Um, the weapons that you use are dependent on your blade so it really sort of drives home that symbiotic relationship between your character and the blades that you use and I think, in a way, kind of reinforces that the blades are the more interesting element to the story because they're the ones with all the cool powers that you, as Rex, are not going to have. um I'm enjoying how the systems work together. I agree with Andy as I felt like I was learning stuff as I needed to know it, and if I fixed some stuff out early, that was great. But when the game was like, "Oh, you can do this," I never felt like the game was like, "Oh, you know, you've done this already, but it doesn't matter. I'll just throw this information at you." It was like a good bite-sized chunk of tips that the game would feed you as you went on so I really enjoyed that um yeah I mean I just can't praise the systems enough the way that they all work together I know I've seen some complaints about this about the systems being too complicated but I haven't experienced that maybe because I'm not at the end game point whereby I'm min-maxing on my characters and my skills and then having that be annoying or perhaps too comprehensive for me to actually get bang for my buck out of but just someone that's sort of playing through as they go So scraping through fights that are at my level, but feeling rewarded by it, I think the systems work together really, really well.
2: Now, I'm the least far in of any of the people who are going to be talking about this game on this podcast, so what I have to say is probably going to be the least useful, but I haven't felt overwhelmed by anything in this yet. It does a good job of slowly introducing you to every step along the way. Even if you've already played the original Xenoblade Chronicles, it still introduces you to the arts and everything. And I would even think it at least initially, it goes too slow. Cuz I, I I upload the first hour of most of the games that we talk about on the podcast onto our YouTube page. I didn't do that in Xenoblade Chronicles, too. I uploaded the second hour, because the first hour is walking you through things like how to buy items from shops, which I thought was a little <laughs> excessive. <laughs> uh, but uh, I haven't felt overwhelmed yet, and the only things I am worried about like are uh, associating new blades with your characters, because like every character has a blade who is like their main weapon, and then they, that blade has a driver. I have those terms backwards, uh, and every driver has a blade associated with the weapon that they're using, and the blade is also a character. Pira is the most prominent, but like uh, also Nia has this talking tiger thing straight out of He Man. He's it's really cool character, uh, <laughs> but also you can get like these randomly generated blades, and also super rare blades like Cosmos is available as a blade that's unlockable and I'm I'm like wow. So by the end of the game I'm going to have dozens of blades probably. And I I'm just I'm very concerned about how complicated that's going to be and how each one is going to really stand being a unique character. I, I as soon as I read during development that every single weapon in the game was going to be represented by a blade character that fights alongside the player I was like that is going to be a mess. And it, uh, I, I, it remains to be seen how well the game handles it.
1: I think it handles it fine. As someone who's a little bit further in and using multiple blades currently, um, you actually really only have one out at a time. So you can swap them in combat, um, but you need to sort of build up your bar to do so. So you won't really be having to manage three or four you know, tigers slash humans running around behind you. You'll just have the one, um, and then if you do need to use a skill that the other blade has, you can then swap them out mid combat. So, and they're also split up into sort of healer blades, you know, damage blades and tanky blades and stuff like that. So, I think compartmentalizing them won't be too difficult. I think you'll probably want to run with the standard setup, like maybe like one tank blade, one healer blade, one DPS blade, or two DPS blades, one healer blade. Um, So, I think it'll be fine to manage late game. Obviously, I'm not quite there yet, but from what I've played as someone who is now using multiple blades, um, it's not hard at all to manage, so I wouldn't be too worried about that. Yeah,
0: it, It's going to boil down to having the right blade for the right area, for the right yeah. boss, for the right job, uh, and then changing up which ones you have with you at that point. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, it's it's not that messy so far. Um, I'm liking it, and I like switching to, to like one of my others if I notice that the enemy has a certain weakness, that sort of thing. Um, On the combat, so it basically uses auto-attacks, and every time you hit one, uh, it builds up gauges for what they call arts, which are like your fancy sword moves and things. Um, You can trigger them manually when they're full. Uh, Every time you land an art, it then builds up the special gauge, which is like the big damaging attack, and then you can chain those with other specials if they're compatible. So like the first one it teaches you is you use Pyra's fire attack, and then Nia can use like a steam ability to draw extra damage out of susceptible enemies i think that's really cool i can't wait to play with that some more yeah i think there's going to be a lot more to it as well like there's there's uh timing elements there's positioning on the arts to get the most attacks out of them it's, it's a really deep combat system already um i like the way they've streamlined the controls from xenoblade chronicles one i always found combat in xenoblade chronicles one a bit faffy trying to scroll through all the the attacks and everything here it's just like map to face buttons which is a lot simpler well the switch has more
2: buttons to work with so that's a lot easier to pull (laughs) off
0: yeah Uh, and like um it just makes you more careful about which which attacks you you build up and which ones you take into certain areas and into which fights which is cool my main concern with just
2: the number of blades available is if i'm going to get to a point where I have to turn around and go and grind up an old blade that I have ignored because quite frankly I want to use Pira. I, I want to use her. I don't want to use any other blade. I want to use Pyrrha <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I'm concerned I'm going to get to the point where I run into something that Pyrrha's not going to be able to handle so I'm going to have to turn around and grind uh, a blade that I've ignored and I, I know I'm playing the wrong genre if I'm going to be complaining about grinding but I, I don't <laughs> want to do that so <laughs> that might be a problem for me. The town development system, which I, I think is really cool. I'm, I'm concerned about how difficult it's going to be to get money to buy out everything in the town, but I've just reached the, the second town in the game, which is, like, it's the second town, but it's the first major town. Uh, and I've just learned about how to buy deeds from shops, and it, it wasn't cheap. It cost most of the money I had, so I'm worried about how much grinding I'm going to have to do to do that. But also, just the size of the town it's huge it took me a couple hours to explore it uh, and see everything and talk to everybody that was in it and the marketplace where you buy the deeds to the shops and you really develop the town is quite small it's quite self contained but just the town was more bulk than content It, it was just big for the sake of being big the plot had described it already as the largest town on this particular Titan. So it felt like, well, we've already described it as large, so now we need to make it large. Whereas like mm-hmm. like Breath of the Wild, which Monolith Soft also worked on, the largest town in the game is in the southeast corner of the map, and you can totally blow through it in 10 minutes. So I'm very concerned about what I'm going to be running into when I get to the Empire, the biggest city in the entire game. It's like, how big is that going to be? How much of that time is that going to eat up? And how much of that is not spent out fighting things and actually engaging with the RPG mechanics? I'm very concerned about that.
0: There was something you mentioned there about uh, needing to spend a lot of money and therefore needing to grind. I did notice, it's on my notes here actually, about how a lot of the early missions are about ensuring you don't have enough money to buy upgrades and things. Mm -hmm. So it's Mm -hmm. like oh, hey, you want this information? Give me 3,000, whatever the currency is in this game. I ran into um, an
2: informant. I was like, wow, what even are these things? So I just I just ignored him. <laughs> I was like, I'll talk to you later when I have more money than I know what to do with.
0: And, and then another one was literally buy everything at the shop so you can buy the deeds. Yeah. And I'm like, dude, I've got no money. I just spent it on getting information from that guy, okay? Uh, yeah, It's so,
1: like, <laughs> buy me a sandwich. And I'm like, I have literally nothing left. This town has sucked me dry. <laughs> like, do not ask me for dessert right now, buddy.
2: Yeah, I, I was... I worried about that, but I know in most JRPGs, when you get towards the end of the game, you have more money to spend than there are things to buy, so I didn't worry about that too much. It's just in the early game, you're not going to be able to do that stuff right away, which is fine.
0: Okay, so another um, element that's been drawing some criticism has been the voice acting. (laughs) Uh, Now, I'm not that bothered about it. I keep seeing non-English people call it Dick Van Dyke-style voices. Andrew was guilty so, of that before I called him out. I, I, uh, can I just address that? I was saying that yeah.
2: based on the first trailer I saw, which, uh, now that I've played the game, I was totally off. Uh, I, I I live in America, so I don't know many English speakers, and probably the main English accent that I know is Daphne on Fraser, which is a completely manufactured accent. That is not what people from Manchester yeah. sound like. Uh, <laughs> but I, I was completely off on that. Uh, the, the accents to me sound fine
0: yeah it's like um rex has a lancastrian accent and like some people think it's cheesy that's how people from lancaster talk <laughs> we're probably going to get lots of hate mail from lancaster now um <laughs> i i like that nia is welsh i'm extremely happy that there's this jrpg that remembers that british people exist because literally everything else is american voices i love
2: nia's voice like her actress i just she does a great job and i, I pira who has an american accent her actress her va does a really great job too
0: yeah and like it is a bit cheesy most jrpgs are but the best ones sort of use it to convey a message or they get to the point of using it and i think that will come here i can't be certain until i've beaten it
1: i love them um i love everything that's cheesy or even remotely corny um (laughs) But, I'm, yeah, I mean, at first, I thought they were a bit over the top. Or, well, I thought they would be more over the top because people were so up in arms about them. I was like, God, it's going to be awful. I'm not going to be able to understand anyone. And, I mean, the accents are prominent, but they're not terrible. Uh, I guess it just isn't the standard, um, I guess, inoffensive, generic English accent or American accent that they normally use for all video games. Um, yeah, the, the boring
2: so Midwest I- accent
1: yeah um i think it's fine um i actually would prefer they kept the uh the welsh accent for all the characters or just that british flavored accent for all of them so giving some of the villains the cheesy american anime bad guy accent <laughs> but um you know you can't have it all um and i think it's great i think it's great that the blades have their own voices too and they're quite distinct um And I mean, Gramps' voice actor is great. I love it. I love the voice acting for Gramps.
0: It's
1: honestly awesome. So all in all, no complaints. I'm actually playing with the English voices on just because I like them so much and they've really grown on me. So if you've heard about the game having awful voice acting, it is honestly not bad. It is not terrible. It's just different. So don't let that put you off.
2: There is one thing. There is a combat sequence quite early on. It's right after Rex has met Pyrrha, and Rex comes out to fight the bad guy, and he just makes this noise. That I could not take seriously. He's like, he's like, (laughs) It was, oh, I I just can't believe the, I'm just looking behind the scenes. Imagining it was like, and the voice director is like, "Do you want to give that another pass?" And his view is like, "No, that's good, that's it. <laughs> uh, it." It was, it's one instance, but it just it ruined the drama of the scene for me.
1: <laughs> yeah, there will be some strange um, jumping sounds that the characters make, um, and sometimes they repeat a little too often. Oh, god! Like, trying to get up a tree, trying to get Rex up a tree was um <laughs> very amusing <laughs> or just but um
2: <laughs> just the dialogue in beg. general, this game is in love with repeating itself. It's like on solid snake level, where somebody will say something, <laughs> there's a proper noun over there, then the main character will go proper noun <laughs> I hate that
0: stuff, I hate it, so uh anyway okay the other the other contentious issue has been in terms of visual design. Uh, Now, there is a a weird contrast, which is a stylistic choice of the anime characters and more realistic backgrounds. You're either going to like that or you're going to hate it. Um, But there's also been a bit of concern about the the way the camera lingers on some of the female characters and some of the design blades, particularly for the female ones. Uh, I know you two have some comments on this. Now, just for a bit of a, a precursor. The term "fan service," uh, Ginny has used it for those sorts of shots, inappropriate shot, camera shots in games. I think a bit more of like using the sixty Spider-Man theme in the Spider-Man movies fan service. Um, if she says "fan service," she means inappropriate shots in this in this respect. So yeah. So what are you making? Because my first experience of it was the way that Rex looks, at a certain part of Pyro when he first finds her. <laughs> I, I haven't had too much of a problem with anything else since i certainly haven't encountered the blade that everyone's upset about uh what are you guys making of this this
2: is the first i've heard of this blade that i'm reading in the show notes here i haven't heard about this i i'm completely focused on Pira right now
1: i have some thoughts about this which uh which might surprise some people that don't listen to me on this podcast or other podcasts that i'm on i am not anti-fan service um i am not someone who is anti-inappropriate shots Um, I am not anti-swimsuit DLC. Very pro all those things. Um, I play lots of Dead or Alive. And I think the soft engine is mankind's, one of mankind's greatest inventions. Um, But I think in this case, those inappropriate shots are employed either right after, right before, or kind of too close to serious narrative beats in the game. And that detracts from my enjoyment of them or detracts from, I guess, the usefulness of having them there or the design choice to have them there so um i guess quite quickly as a vague example um you'll have moments in the game that um sort of are like the emotional lows where something bad has just happened or is about to happen or the characters are very sad or downtrodden and i think having the camera sort of focus on those parts of um, the female character's anatomy during that time where you're trying to say something deep or say something that's sad or serious um (laughs) I don't know if it's there for comedic effect or not, but it kind of really draws away from me feeling that sort of sympathy for the character going through the sad moment at the time because obviously the camera's panned onto um, Pira's anatomy, um, which, while something sad is playing in the background. So I think that detracts from the emotional impact of the story beat that they're delivering. So I guess my issue is not so much that they have those moments, but that they affect the reception of other more serious narrative moments in the game, um, with the one particular blade that people are getting really, really riled up about, um, it's an ice blade that you find later on in the game, um, and the I guess the contentious issue is that it looks, she looks anatomically impossible; her back looks about broken by the weight of um, her frame, <laughs> and um, she's drawn by artists best known for their work on Japanese adult games. So, um, obviously the Xenoblade has chosen to pull in this sort of art design, um, for some reason, um, unknown to us obviously, but it's there. There probably is a market for character design like that, but I think if you're trying to, like I said, use that blade and have them around any sort of serious sort of story capacity, it's probably going to affect your ability to take that particular part of the story seriously. So, um, as I said before, my issue is not that they have those moments in the game, I accept that those moments exist and that people out there like them. I enjoy them in other games myself. But the issue for me is just the timing of them sort of like pulls you in and out of the game, serious moments, because it does have a very serious underlying narrative about corruption and pollution and the world ending and human responsibility and stuff like that. But then we have quite a few story beats that are underscored by those moments um, or noticeably affected by those moments for me personally then it's less enjoyable. That being said, I still love the game overall. Um, I think that on, as a whole, it's great. It's very playable. Um, the systems are awesome and comprehensive, and so it won't stop me from playing the game, but I can see how it would stop someone else from playing the game.
2: I'm just going to forewarn people, uh, our listeners, especially our younger leoplot based listeners, uh, I'm going to use some medical terminology here. I'm gonna use some more anatomically correct medical words here uh for what I'm about to talk about i i'm not I think I would say that I'm against fan service because I think it's mostly unnecessary, especially in the games that it comes in, like dead or alive volleyball. I have absolutely no respect for that game at all. I think it's an abomination <laughs> that it even exists or that people even buy it uh but that we're not talking about that game right now. But I'm not against characters being sexual, or uh, woman characters being attractive, or even dressing provocatively. I think the best example, the one I always go to, is Bayonetta. Uh, Bayonetta is an amazing character who is extremely sexually attractive, and uh, her sexual attraction is a big part of her character, and that's where she derives a lot of her power from. That's part of what makes her such a powerful woman. But Bayonetta is also in a game specifically and explicitly made for adults. Uh, I'm not saying that Xenoblade Chronicles is a child's game, but I am saying that it's based at a more broad audience than Bayonetta is. Uh, so when I look at Pyrrha, who the 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 outfit they have her in is infuriates me, and the the way they've designed her body, it I don't understand how they could have this character who is like this survivor of uh, an ancient time uh who now lives as a living weapon and they've got her dressed in a thong uh and but her top half is a breastplate so they got her like literally in half armor and the thong and, like, I guess they're boy shorts or just regular shorts, whatever it is she has on over the top of it, is so tight you can see her pubic mound. And I, I posted a screenshot on Twitter where you can see her in profile in a cutscene. Her breasts are as wide as her torso. I am just infuriated by this character, and I. I there's cultural differences here i know there are i'm trying to be sensitive to that i'm trying to only address this in the context of the game but i do not understand why characters like this exist it undermines the character it's out of place in the story i'm not i'm not happy with Pier's character design and it's really interfering with my ability to enjoy the character at all who again is the character i'm most interested
0: in learning about and all fair comments i think So what are you guys playing in the coming week?
1: I'm going to be playing as much Xenoblade Chronicles as I can, Um, just because, like I said, it's really pulled me in and I'm enjoying it. So I'll be playing that.
2: I will be playing more Xenoblade Chronicles Uh, I'm I'm interested to see where this goes and to see if I enjoy it, because I have not i have not decided anything about this game yet in spite of uh, the rant i just had and also nine parchment comes out on tuesday I'm really excited to play that one
0: Uh, more xenoblade for me and possibly some more l.a noir Uh, i think this is me done now for switch purchases between now and the end of the year so yeah i think i'm going to focus on trying to get xenoblade done before we hit the new year and the new releases start getting announced and coming at us all over again Thanks for listening to this episode of the Switch Focus Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on iTunes. It'll really help us get noticed. You can also listen and subscribe on Stitcher, TuneIn, and other podcast services. Why not also check out our YouTube channel, where we regularly upload the first hour of many of the games we play. Follow us on Twitter, at SwitchFocusPod. YouTube, Facebook, and at SwitchFocusPodcast.com for more updates, news, and other content. And don't forget you can follow us all individually. I'm at Toast. Andrew is at play critically and Ginny is at Ginny Woes.